Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and welcome to another episode of Real Stories. This is a theatre and art series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker, on the Just Checking In podcast. Every Real Stories episode theme tune is, of course, provided by our good friends in Eka, and each pod, we discuss my special guests' theatrical careers, the pieces of work that have meant the most to them from a mental health perspective, any issues with the industry they want to discuss, and their mental health journeys. This is real stories. My special guest for this episode of Real Stories is Louise Bryant. Louise is a writer and actor and also happens to be the twin sister of Behind the Decks guest Amy L, which is how you are listening to this pod. In this real story, we talk about classism in acting, the impact of Me Too on the industry, the cutthroat nature of the industry and grief. So this is Louise Bryant's real story. Louise, welcome to Real Stories. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. First off, we chatted about seven months ago initially, so this has been a bit of a long time coming. I can barely remember what happened last week, week, to be honest. But how are you getting on and how is semblance of normality at time of recording right now? (laughs) Yeah, well, firstly, yeah, thank you for having me. And yeah, I cannot believe how long it's been since we last spoke but yeah no I'm good I think it's nice now that we're sort of back in semi-normality whatever that is now you know I think maybe like everyone else I feel just every month I'm a completely different person I think I've changed (laughs) more in the last year than I have in my whole life (laughs) I feel that yeah sometimes I think about like I went into lockdown at 25 and I've come out 27 and I'm just like wow I feel like I was a seal pup at 18. I feel like I was a seal pup at 24. It's a yeah. weird feeling. Yeah, so what, have you had two lockdown birthdays then? or? Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, see, I've, I've only had one. So if we're in lockdown yeah, in November... Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I say sorry crying for... into my mic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel sorry for um, my... Uh, I know some people that were like turning 18, like family members and things over lockdown. Mm. And I just thought, oh that's awful never experiencing clubbing um it's true yeah well i mean it's weird like the people who've gone into it 18 and come out 20 like 18 to 20 is quite a big change like i didn't know how to do anything for myself at 18 and i barely knew how to do anything (laughs) for myself at 20 so having that whole two years of like stagnant development must be really hard I know. I've got neighbours and they've got three young kids. And I just, I mean, I remember in first lockdown and I just don't know how they do it. They're, I think they're like four, six and nine. The three, three girls. And I just think, wow, hats off yeah. to them. I was I mean, in my garden yeah. drinking Negronis, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I'm one of four siblings. So if that happened when us four were all under 10, like I actually think my mum and dad would have gone insane. So, yeah, I dread yeah. to think what, what it's, it's been like for people with kids, to be honest. Right. Mm-hmm. We've got so much interesting stuff to talk about, Louise. Mm-hmm. And there's some stuff in your theatrical journey, which I haven't discussed on this series yet. So shall we just start the show? Let's start Real Stories, as we always do on every episode, Louise, by checking in about your journey into theatre and the art. So 
firstly, what made you fall in love with the theatre, acting, drama, writing and everything in between? You know, I was thinking about this and it's hard not to give a cliche answer of sort of, you know. <laughs> you, can get, just... you can give a cliched answer, it's fine. <laughs> but you know, that sort of, I felt the pull, it's just instinctive. But it really is. I think I am through and through a creative person. So when you walk into the space of like a theatre or even something like writing and reading a book, it feels natural and where I'm meant to be. So when I first went to the theatre, which really wasn't, I'd say that early. I mean, still relatively early. I think about nine, ten was it pantomime or was it more sophisticated? No, it was pantomime. <laughs> of <laughs> but, course, yeah. <laughs> but what I will say is the first show that I saw and I went, this is what I want to do this, I want to be involved, was, it was 2008 and I was seeing a play and it's called Something Wicked This Way Comes. It's an adaptation mm. of a book and it was just what theatre, I think, should be. It was fantastical, it was magical, it was just chaotic and fun and I left that theatre being like that is the most amazing experience I've ever had I want to do it so I think that is for me why I love acting so much why I love theatre and writing and, and it's the storytelling and the escapism and what you can take from each experience from it. So that experience was very much transformative for you? Yeah I would say that because in my life and the other things I would do like sports I was very sporty growing up I enjoyed it but there was nothing that I left feeling like my eyes and my brain had been open to all these other different ideas and themes of life. You're fairly early on in your acting journey comparatively I think mm -hmm. I'm right in saying your final showcase at drama school was due to take place in March 2020, but it was cancelled because of the <laughs> pandemic. Was that difficult for you, not having that closure and like sense of achievement, if you had hopefully passed it with flying mm, colours? Yeah, <laughs> I did, thankfully. Um, oh, amazing. Okay. <laughs> I think for me, it wasn't as bad as some other people because I've been very lucky. I've also studied a degree at the University of Birmingham. So in my final year there, I also had a, a show that I performed in. So I had already experienced that sort of graduating and, and that closure. So when I didn't get it with Rose Bruford, obviously it was gutting. And one of the reasons I was wanted to do the course, but I can't help but think there's people that were doing their BA acting courses that just didn't even get that experience. So it wasn't as bad as I think it was for other people. One thing I spoke with previous guest Dan Dawes was the joy and positive aspect of working with other actors in this industry, sort of creating and, and that camaraderie that comes with it when it came to his mental health. Is that a part of theatre that's really important to you too? Yeah, I think when you are acting or you're in your rehearsal room with other actors and directors, when it's done right, it's a very special and magical space because when you're an actor the main job is being vulnerable and open and if you're not I think in your outside of your work you're vulnerable right with your closest friends or your family so being able to just walk into a room and kind of strip back those walls that you have as a being and meet these strangers and leave five hours later knowing a lot about someone you can't help but form 
these really unique and special bonds with people i I don't Mm. think there's a single actor that i've even if some people naturally you're not going to get on with everyone but i still think it's just such a very revealing process that you can't help but be influenced by other Mm. actors that's one of the reasons i also love it because it's just so special i love people right so i wish i could say something that quite described what it's like being with actors in a rehearsal room i just don't think there's words that do it justice as well as acting you're also giving writing a go Mm -hmm. why was that something that you wanted to pursue and what impact does writing have on your mental health versus being on stage and performing so writing wasn't ever a conscious decision of like i'm going to write something i want to be a writer it was very natural it's always been something that i was doing even before acting and it's sort of from that spiraled into a bit of a a career obviously there's less creative writing that i do i do a lot of writing copywriting for my sister for example (laughs) but as an actor i think i'm moving you know you learn more about yourself what you want to create what you want to tell and I am very inspired by playwrights such as Tim Crouch. He's sort of like a experimental theatre maker. I, I think he's absolutely insane with what he does. I just think you go see one of his plays, it's an experience. I know all theatre is an experience, but he really involves the audience. Not in a way of like, oh, I need a participant to come up on stage. He sort of directly involves the audience in that narrative. So I was inspired by his work. And then as an actor, I thought, well, I want to make work. I want to tell stories. And then from that, that's how I started writing, which is why I'm writing a play right now. So I think that's how I got into writing. And and as acting goes, I think that's sort of where I'm moving in that sort of almost theatre practitioner kind of way of of telling stories because I struggle just auditioning and not getting the job or getting the job but as an actor you kind of relinquish all control of yourself it's up to everyone else whether or not you can get a job so being able to go right well I'm gonna make my own work is very special and it allows me to feel creative when the more commercial side of the acting industry is you know it's more rigid that was answering the first part of the question what was the the second part So what impact does writing have on your mental health versus being on stage? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting, actually. I think writing for me is a very natural subconscious process. So I find it extremely helpful for my mental health because it allows me to just actually find out how I'm feeling. I'm not good at reading my emotions. (laughs) And I, I say that. I laugh, but really, I've, well, we'll get onto the whole mental chat later, but it's a problem that I have. So writing allows me to explore those feelings and be creative and really just sort of get down to the depths of who I am. But saying that, I think there is a danger of being stuck in your own head for so long. So when you're creatively writing from yourself, I think it's a fine line because There's this quote I love and the inspiration for my play as well. And it goes, man is securely imprisoned within himself. I sort of think very like metaphorically and everything's in relation to other. But this idea of if you think too much and you're caught too much in your own thoughts, it just starts 
snowballing. So I think the writing is really good, but when you have acting and you're allowed to just come out on stage and I think it's a very freeing process. I get to explore emotions that I don't normally explore in real life. I'm not a very argumentative, I really don't like conflict and I will avoid it to my detriment sometimes, but it means that I can go on stage and I can play a really loud, angry character. <laughs> and it's great because I think no one human should only be experiencing one spectrum of emotions, right? So I think to answer the question, I think both of them have, I think in tandem, have their equal balances for helping with that. I wouldn't be able to pick one more than the other. I, I think they work in tandem. There's a great quote there for a mental health podcast, for sure. You mm -hmm. you spoke about that relinquishing of control. How mm -hmm. difficult or easy an adjustment is that to make in acting when, say, you might have mental health problems or you might have anxiety when it comes to someone's mental health in the industry? So the last year with the pandemic, anxiety is something that I have always dealt with from a young age. And it's only in the pandemic that it has really come out screaming in front of me. So when you ask a question like this, it's quite hard because pre-pandemic, anxiety and performing and, and things were issues, but I could deal with them and, and get on with them. Whereas now, my anxiety is the worst it's ever been. And I'm sure that is for a lot of people with the pandemic. But it's funny that saying that because I'm going to be performing on stage in two months time which is so exciting and I was thinking do I feel anxious about this and being on the stage but it actually feels very comforting but I think that for me is because it's what I'm used to so for someone with anxiety coming in acting or wanting to explore the industry for the first time I think if you're not learning to act or playing around if if you do any sort of theater acting you probably hear the term safe space thrown around <laughs> a lot and it's funny because you know you hear it and you're like oh safe space but really it's true if you are sort of a bit more anxious and stressed if it's not done in a safe space because you're being so vulnerable I think it can be quite detrimental because it's not helpful if you're so vulnerable and and other people are in a position to knock you down. I think it's going to have an onset effect. I mean, that happens with a lot of drama groups, I can't lie. Yeah, yeah, I know I say this. <laughs> I know, I know. And I think that's life though, isn't it? I think that's why, you know, when you find the right theatre group or the right actors and the right space, acting and performing is the most incredible, incredible instrument to help for like something like mental health. I mean, I know I have friends that are very interested in working with prisoners for example or in hospitals with young kids using these practices in acting to help people learn more about themselves and deal with issues that they have so I suppose it's a bit of a double-edged sword I want to be on the positive note though and say that it has definitely more of a positive impact than a negative one I think mm. you just have to be if it's not working for you like anything, you just have to think, right, why is it not working? Shut it down, try something else. There's hundreds of theatre groups and things. So I think, yeah, as trivial as it sounds, you have to stay positive, which is an incredibly hard thing to do. But it's what you have to do if acting is something you want to pursue. When you graduated Performing Arts University, you told me that you have to be, or you had to be proactive as an actor to audition and get those first few roles. Did that put any 
internal pressure on you or was it externalized in any way sort of knowing that you're now a, a small fish in a, in a very very large pond <laughs> yeah I think like any young adult graduating from university or drama school you kind of come out into the world with this idea of you know you're gonna land your first job it's all gonna be a ladder you're gonna just take steps up the ladder for example I had quite a an easy high school experience relatively speaking where you know I was good academically and you learn you sit your exams you pass your process so coming out of university I was sort of thrown of not having a direct path or a ladder to go with my whole life has been what's the next task or the the next job to do and with acting that's the whole thing is that it's so sporadic and yeah I came out of university being like the world is my oyster and then you know I moved to London and that's obviously when I took up this acting course at Rose Bruford but it's the shock and realizing that life isn't as simple as that I think I maybe had that realization later in life than some people I definitely did so it took me a while to sort of shed that naivety compared to you know I had some friends that didn't go to uni so they finished high school or they went to college and they're working and and they developed those techniques so I sort of was very naive and then I realized very quickly that how am I going to pay bills to live and then also try this acting career and get to auditions and you hear everyone like I was even saying this at the start of the podcast if you can't get work make your own work right so it puts an incredible amount of pressure on yourself and Mm -hmm. I think it put too much pressure to the point where you think acting then becomes like a job rather than a natural sort of creative process which is something I've really been struggling with the last three years for example with writing it you know it just I sit down I write it happens because acting's my job and that's what I came out and was like I'm going to be an actor this is what I've always wanted to do it stripped away that pressure stripped away the creativity and that natural sort of cathartic release that it gives and it then impacted my acting so I think if you put too much pressure on yourself by saying that it is it's dangerous you can start to infect yourself with negative thinkings like if you go into an audition being like I need to get this job because otherwise I can't pay my bills your performance is gonna be well you might do a great performance but for me it then started like that desperate need started oozing into every character I was playing but again I think that you know it's it's been what three years plus a pandemic (laughs) I've learned to now you know I have a part-time job that I know if I just do that job two days a week that pays my very fundamental living costs so I know if I don't get any acting jobs I can still pay my rent and eat food and travel on the most means of living and that's something that took me three years to forge you know I started working that job when I graduated uni and I worked way more than two days a week I worked too much focused more on that than my acting so I think it's about finding that balance which is something that is really hard to find and I think when I was told like you need to come out act whatever that no one sits you down and told me for example like you're not going to have everything figured out you're going to make 
tons and tons of wrong decisions mm, and the it'll reality yeah yeah and mm. it'll probably be like three four years until you actually start knowing more about yourself how to work as a business for yourself and how to time manage effectively which is what i'm still learning to do i don't think i'll ever stop learning how to do mm. that <laughs> you spoke about the economic reality there i think this brings us nicely on to classism which was something mm. you were keen to discuss louise and it's fair to say that classism is probably pretty rife in the industry and maybe in a worse position now than it was in the days of sort of grants and apprenticeships that the likes mm. of Sir Patrick Stewart did, Dame Julie Walters, and they revere these apprenticeships as being essential to them actually being able to do acting as working class people. You mm. told me that to pursue acting as a career, you need to have some level of privilege. Yeah. Now, for any working class actors listening to the pod, I hope that doesn't put them off, but can you explain what you meant by that? And then maybe the realities, like you said, of what if an actor doesn't have much economic or social privilege? Mm -hmm. So I want to firstly start by saying I am not naive to the, you know, I went to university, I then went to drama school. I come from a decently well-off family in the sense that I could go to university you know I could mm. do these things and it wasn't as big of a stress as it was for some other people I went to university with so I'm very aware that I am also coming from a position of privilege so it's hard for me to then I want to speak about this and give advice but I feel like the person that's going to have the best answers would be someone that is working class but what I will say within the classism because it really really like it's something I'm incredibly passionate about and it makes me so angry because I'm coming from a position of you know like I went to uni and I'm doing these things and I'm still like really struggling to like break mm. into the industry so I can't even imagine how hard it is for someone that can come in without training or something but then this is where I say the narrative changes because the beautiful thing about acting is that you do not need training I know some people think okay yeah it's good but any director I've ever worked with is like just start just do it learn on the job and that's the beautiful thing about it so I think for anyone trying to get into the industry from the working class background you have to really just think that's what I think what you need to think positively on that stretch and and yes the elitism especially with COVID is just it's like a turbocharge isn't it yeah yeah but what I will say is that there's definitely a movement in the last three four years where there's more of a consciousness to the elitism for example I'm a member of the National Youth Theatre. When I auditioned, I think they had one audition day in Glasgow. All their other auditions were down in London. So if you wanted to perform or try to get into the National Youth Theatre, you had to then think about travelling all the way down to England yep. to audition, pay for the audition, pay for your night's stay, and then might not even get in. <laughs> so there's things like... Now they have more auditions up in Scotland. I know that the National Youth Theatre have, I think you can apply for like a, a bursary or like a grant or something like they'll pay for your audition basically. I know that Guildhall for their BA acting this year or last year, they cut their audition prices in half because they said we're aware of the hardship that this year has cost. So a relatively expensive audition then became, I think it was... I think it was £35. 
and well yeah it's still 35 pounds i think to audition for a drama school and pay i think is ridiculous it's silly but covid has meant that online auditions are now really common so you don't have to pay to travel hopefully uh, schools have cameras because uh, all you need is a phone so i think it's moving like there are things that are changing and i also think that there is a consciousness towards the issues whether or not people are doing things to change it is another thing but I know I have a friend a director who I went to the University of Birmingham with he's from a a working class background and it's very inspiring to see how he works he moved back home lived with his parents I think he still does actually and he's just managed to grind he's just grinding out and, and his is a directing path and now he's he's doing really well for himself so I think it just comes down to that horrible thing of, well, that's the way it is. How am I going to do this and be determined? And it's just horrendous that that's what the answer is, which is why, for example, I really like one of my goals, you know, with wherever my career goes is to continue to try and make things available to people that don't have training that are from working class backgrounds or less wealthy and I think the more that theatre spreads into instead of just being the top 10% and it spreads into smaller communities rural communities the more it becomes accessible for all and Covid I think I know Lynn Gardner she's a what's it a theatre critic she wrote an article last year saying that covid and big theaters obviously because of covid big theaters can't open they can't run so rural theater touring theaters are going to become a thing so i think covid's done an advantage for smaller productions more niche first-time directors first-time actors there's more of a want for smaller things and you don't have to have as much experience or training or many casting on your cv so i think there's advantages in that I think the answer is really I can't give an answer on how we can change it I can just say that theatre needs to be made for the people and I don't think theatre is being made for the people right now and until Mm. there's a shift in that then I think it will change because if I would just say in the Victorian era theatre was like people's tv right And Shakespeare, for example, people hardly went and actually listened to what he was saying. They were all drinking and it was rowdy. It was like the football. Yeah, yeah, it was like like the football, yeah. (laughs) And I'm one of these actors that believe theatre should be like that. I think the audience should turn up and be rowdy and be with other people and sort of like a pub in a way. Maybe not um, smash though. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe. But I can't help but think it would just be brilliant if uh, if you're all just drunk watching a play. But I can see the the debate for theatre not being like that. But I do think, you know, you turn up to the National Theatre and the audience. I was lucky enough to go see one of their plays a couple of weeks ago and I looked around and everyone looked like me, you know? Everyone was white. I was probably one of the youngest there, I will say that. But I think there is an issue with people in their 20s that unless you are like theatre, you don't go see it. So I think there's space in the theatre industry right now to bring a bit of the old Shakespearean like back, bit of rowdiness, bit of pub-like mentality 
which is what I'm trying to do with my play, which is why, in a way, I'm not calling it a play, it's an experience. So I think the industry needs a whole shift, but that's, again, the great thing about COVID, because I think it's forcing the industry to shift, whether it likes it or not. And I think it's easy to say that it will be now, it's more elite, harder to get into, but I think... If you just look at it, it looks a bit like that. But actually, I think there's a lot of things working underneath which are positive. Yeah, I think it comes down to as well, like democratising theatre crowds. I remember going to see a play that a mate was in. I won't say what the play was. It was a very well-known actor who was leading it. And the jokes that people were laughing at, like in, like hysterically, I was like, it's not even funny. But anyway, yeah. the theatre industry is an amazing place in many ways, Louise. But it's also filled with a lot of brutality ruthlessness cutthroat culture especially when it comes to the auditioning process and production environments in plays or or in film you've been quite lucky in your experience with drama teachers but you told me about this slang term called the director dictator which i I certainly can attest to when i was sort of doing youth drama can you explain (laughs) about this culture and then how that behavior can be detrimental to the mental health of the actors which end up being involved in it yes so i think going back 50 60 years ago is very common in the industry from what i've gathered obviously i wasn't alive 60 years ago but i've worked with directors now that were directing back then maybe like 40 50 years you get the point but it was very common you know the director is the fountain of all knowledge and his or hers questions must you should never question them right and with certainly the older directors that I've worked with talking about people in their sort of late 60s there is this air of just it is it's intense it's the first time I worked with one director who I've worked with been very lucky to work with a lot now and he is the most wonderful wonderful man but when I first met him I was absolutely petrified and He runs very strict rehearsals and what he says goes. So instead of, you know, as an actor, you might get up on stage with, if you're doing a scene with another actor and a sort of more laid back director might be like, okay, just go, do something, play. And then from that, that director will tweak and make it look more refined and polished. A sort of dictator director will go, right, Louise, stand over there, sit on that chair, when he says this line, move over there. It's it's a lot more blocked and you have things to do. Problem is, with some of this directing, is if you don't do exactly as they say, it's very normal for them to shout and be like, can I swear? I don't think... Yeah, you can swear. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's very normal to, for them to literally... I've, I think I had one director shout at me and be like, what the fuck are you doing? And they get angry because they're on a time schedule and you're there trying to remember your lines, remember where you're going. And then just to have this sort of vicious shout come at you, it, it's horrible. And this style of directing, it can make or break you. And I think the belief of it was that If you can take directing like that, you can deal with how cutthroat the industry is. And I can agree with that, but I'm also like, thankfully now with the new generation of directors, we're beginning to question, why does the industry need to be that horrible? Mm. Why does the industry need to be like that? People choose to be horrible or and blunt and short. And yes, you're busy, but I think it's a choice whether or not you 
can have a bit of compassion. So I think the industry is changing now where there is less dictator directors. I mean, one big issue is that I think we all face now is, you know, you audition and even if you're like three, four rounds into it, you still don't get told that you've been unsuccessful and you find out you've not been cast when they announce the casting uh, on Twitter. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Sky Sports News breaking news, like the ticker goes along the side and you see someone signed. That's literally like yeah. the equivalent. Oh, right, so I haven't got that job. Right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think it is a lot to ask for, for a no. Especially, you know, they say, oh, we're so busy, but it just doesn't take that long to send an email out and be like, I'm sorry, you've been unsuccessful. Especially after you've taken time to learn some lines and film a piece or whatever. So I suppose coming back to yeah, that mental health thing, I think with a di- getting the term muddled up now, with a dictator director, I think it's very easy to say, yes, it will make or break you. I'm very lucky that when I first came across one of these directors, I was mentally in probably one of the stronger places in my life at that point. So I internally went, stuff you. I'm going to show you that I am good enough. He made me so angry that he got this fire out of me. And then in the end, I did a great performance. And he was like, yeah. He didn't give a single compliment throughout all rehearsals. So when he said something like that was good, it's like, oh my God, he said that was good. (laughs) So it worked for me, but I don't think it works for everyone. And not everyone's as self in a in a self acceptance headspace as much as that as well. As an actor, Louise, you're always putting on a mask when you take a role on on the stage. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, you spoke about this mask that you have to, or at least some actors feel like like they have to put on around other actors off stage. And I've just got flashbacks to drama school now. <laughs> Can you tell me about that mask and if you've ever struggled <laughs> with it? And then do you think this mask is like a survival mechanism for actors? Yeah. Or do you think it's a true reflection of their characters? Like where do you draw the line between agency and someone just having a you know their head massively up their backside? Mm-hmm. I think... There is a problem with divas <laughs> in this industry. And if you are not one of like, I'm not a, I'm not a diva. Like I, I just don't treat people that way. So when I, you know, I've met actors, particularly when I was, when I got into the Nashville Youth Theatre and I'm talking, how old was I? I think at the time, 17, but it was the youth group. So there was kids younger than me. I was in one of the oldest in that cohort. And I visibly, like I visibly remember like having to put on a mask. I think naturally with acting or if you're in an audition and there's other people in the room, you're all fighting for the same job, right? Yeah, it's like, it's like toxic peacocking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I say this being myself guilty of it as well, but it's very easy to feed off of someone's fear. If you're feeling confident and there's someone there that isn't, it's easy to feed off of that and sort it's like, of... It's not sharks sniffing blood, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I say that, I mean, I've done that. I know it's awful. It doesn't happen loads, but I can feel myself sort of feeling better about myself because someone else isn't as confident. And it's the way the industry sort of, because it's so competitive, it forces you in a way to think like that. And you need to, you need to be confident. And if you act confident, you put on that mask you start to believe it. I think confidence, everyone has it. It's just about learning how to create it and utilize it, right? So I think 
the mask is when used is really helpful i use that just before i walk into you know an audition room if i'm feeling a bit vulnerable you know if i put the mask on it's like okay louise you've got this it's sort of a, a shift in thinking in a way rather than putting a mask on i think if it's if you're actually having to put a mask on and it's becoming something that is emotionally draining which i think that's different to having a shift in your thinking i think putting a mask on you're going I'm not confident. I'm going to put on this mask of being confident. I don't know if I'm making sense. It's fine. Yeah, no, for sure. That it's a very subtle shift, I think, from going, I know I can be confident, so I'm going to be confident now, which would be the shift. And then with a mask, it's like, I'm, I'm not confident. I'm going to put this mask on. I am confident. I think when it gets like that, I've done a bit of the both. But if it's putting the mask on, it, it does then become draining. And then I've had it with acting, even in the last year, because of the covid and like uh, anxiety and things i'm going is this am i really willing to put myself through this again what is the point right am i having fun with this anymore and i always have to ask myself that and remind myself of why i'm acting and why i'm doing it for and it comes back to that idea of when acting becomes a job suddenly everything changes so I think the mask is needed in this industry, unfortunately, because it's, it is, it's peacocking. But I think it's being aware that you're doing it. And that is something that comes with experience and years of auditioning and things. And I only speak from having been acting, I suppose, since I was 17. I'm 24 now. So mm. I'm sure if you asked an actor in their 50s, they probably would have a very different answer to what i would say to it a much more emotionally charged topic we're going to discuss now is me too and me too in acting louise's mm -hmm. showbiz was very much at the vanguard of it i would probably argue you've been lucky not to have had me mm -hmm. too affect your life as a female actor but it was something that you were quite keen to talk about can you just explain why that is for the listeners and then maybe what you've become self-aware of or or engage within the past year or so when it comes to mm -hmm. this? So I shouldn't be shocked that I haven't experienced something in the Me Too movement when it comes to my acting career. I think any woman can say about some form of sexual assault from mm. the most simple level, just to be existing, being a woman. <laughs> and it's not how society should be, but that's why we have these things like Me Too. But Career-wise, I've been very, very lucky. I know male and female actors that have been questioned, like, I'll give you this job if, if you do this for me, for example. And yeah, I know there's always someone you know. And I can't imagine if I was put in a situation, it's very easy to go, I would absolutely not. But, you know, say you've been grinding a career for 10 years and have some big agent or whatever, questionably I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't do it but I realize it's very easy without having being confronted with it and it coming and they know the that you're grinding as well like yeah. they know you're, you've been in that position yeah yeah and, and yeah. I think that well it's that power structure right which is why the me too movement in the industry why it was allowed to happen but no I've been very lucky and I think it's all about again educating and allowing people to understand I think as an actor, because you, you walk on into a rehearsal and there's a director, there is a very obvious 
power structure in the theatre. It's very rigid. Everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone has a job. And with power comes manipulation, I suppose. But I remember I was in a play. Actually, it was my final play that I did, my showcase at university. And it was a cast. There was five females and one male director. And I just thought he was absolutely brilliant with the way he dealt with everything. He walked into the rehearsal room and said, right, hey guys, I'm Ian, I'm your director. And straight away said, I'm aware that I am a man. All of you guys are women. I don't want any of you feeling uncomfortable, but I just want to like say, say it out there. If you st- if there's anything I do or whatever, like call me up on it and I mean he didn't do anything but for example we played like these warm-up games where you know as an actor you essentially like to release tension on a back uh, like in your back or something you might touch your cast members back or even like their thighs like a lot of touching is involved right I'm all right with that I kind of think that comes with the job and I find it helpful if someone does put pressure on a part of my arm for example to release tension but Ian was like I don't want to create this power structure between director and cast I want to sort of be one of you so is it okay I want to get involved is it okay and we were all like yeah it's fine so I think straight away it just we were very aware of what he wanted to be respectful and things and, and I think yeah he just went about it in such the right way I've heard stories like my friend she just graduated I've heard stories obviously I'm, I'm speaking from ear to ear but with issues of like just people not being asked if they're all right with being touched and things mm, like consent, that. Consent, yeah. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I think I've just been very lucky. I think I've had one of the most rare occasions where someone has been overly, I was going to say overly cautious, but I don't think he was being over. I think <laughs> I'm so used to not, have, like, consent and, and the Me Too, it's so surprising when someone is genuine and aware that it becomes, in my mind, you know, it becomes a shock. So... Yeah, I've been very lucky and I've worked with very, very good directors, but it is something that is around in the industry. But the Me Too movement has really helped, I think, education and people being aware. For example, we now have, I'm not sure of the technical term, but there's this woman who's like a movement director, but comes in like for sex scenes and she will come in and choreograph the whole movement where, you know, you move here, you touch here and it's blocked to the most precise T and it just takes away the ambiguity and the issues surrounding that which the industry didn't have 50 years ago. I want to reflect on your journey in theatre Louise now if we can before we move on. You've obviously been in it for seven years and you probably were acting as a child when you were younger than that. (laughs) So far what has it taught you about yourself do you think? Acting I think this is why I love acting so much. I think it's the only job, the only thing that allows you to grow mentally and physically. You put your feet into another person's shoes and it asks you to be empathetic. It asks you to think about what life is like for someone else and how they deal with that. And I think that's the most powerful and special thing about acting and and why I love it so much certainly I know I've found a character when 
they start infecting like Louise in her like day-to-day life I think like I learned a monologue before Christmas and she was it's really like spicy like she, a young girl and she knew what she wanted and then I was like going around the house like I think I said something to my mum and just totally answered the way this character would answer and it's just so funny because I think there was a moment where both of us were like what's going on here but I think that's the beauty about acting is and, and the most special thing you're you're not thinking about how can I make more money or if, it, if it's yeah if, if your goal I mean if your goal is just to make loads of money then fine but I love it because it allows me to learn so much about other people and the world around me which I think is very very special we've talked about Louise the actor writer maybe director one day I want to go into your real story now, Louise, and talk about your own journey. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Tell me a little bit about your early life in Dundee, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Louise we meet here? Okay, so I was born in Houston, Texas, and then I moved over to Dundee in Scotland, where I grew up. And then obviously I moved to Birmingham to study and then London. So that's sort of where I have been. And I suppose my earliest memory with my mental health, which I never thought it was mental health, was when I was about eight and nine years old, I would wake up in the middle of the night with panic attacks. And I think honestly I was worrying I'd wake up and I would just get myself in a hole about thinking about it's pretty dark things like dying and what happens after Mm. you die and then I would have a panic attack (laughs) and it went on for ages to the point where my mum and dad had to put a bed in their room just because I, I felt safer being with them I was too young to understand I mean it's obvious now why I was thinking like that but I didn't know what was happening. And my mum and dad, they didn't really struggle with anxiety and things like that. So it was sort of like, oh, Louise just is waking up in the night and she's scared. And now with hindsight and years on my back, I can see that that was my first dealings with anxiety that has then followed me through in various panic attacks, heart palpitations throughout my life, which I was in denial about it being anxiety. And then because it's hit the peak of how bad it's been in the pandemic that I'm like, okay, wow. It's actually like I've been working with a counsellor to work out where it's coming from. And suddenly it's like these events, like my childhood, for example, like having those panic attacks, suddenly aware of it. But I'd say, yeah, about eight or nine years old, which seems so young, but that's how old I was. We'll come on to anxiety in a little bit, Louise, but... You are a non-identical twin, so growing up as one and with both of you being creative, how did that manifest itself? I understand you were pretty competitive with each other, right? But <laughs> but on the other hand, when one of you excelled in one area, you, you sort of left them to it. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were incredibly competitive. We were known as the Bryant twins. And, you know, we were very sporty. And I remember we did a lot of swimming and I was better at backstroke. So Amy was better at breaststroke. We just, I think subconsciously, it was like, right, well, you do that, you do that one. I didn't, because I was good at backstroke, I didn't think there was a need to try and be good at 
breaststroke because that was Amy's sport. And I think that's how we always grew up. But then there, I remember we were running a race. It was like a in high school with all the other high schools in Dundee. And we were, I think it was like the 400 meters. And me and Amy ran hip to hip around the lap. And then in like the last stretch, I sprinted in front of her and managed to win. So there was, I still like such a great memory because Amy was always better at running. So we've always had little competitive streaks and, and stuff. And I think it's good because it pushed me to work hard at something and there was always that impetus to be good to do something for example my sister is very focused and can sit and revise for an exam for hours and hours I'm not like that but if I see Amy revising I'd go oh my goodness I need to revise (laughs) (laughs) so funny how the mind works like that isn't it yeah Yeah. (laughs) so I think yeah I think the competitiveness really has been an advantage in my life because it allowed me to always be doing and pushing for something. I think where it falls apart is, for example, singing was something that she was really good at. I just didn't sing. That wasn't my thing. Obviously, then with acting, you need to sing. You need to be comfortable with it. And because I'd left the singing to my sister... I was my biggest insecurity and then it also became a thing of I can't sing because that's what she's good at I don't want to be compared because obviously being twins the first thing people do inadvertently is compare you and that's exhausting that really is exhausting actually even now so because we're both in our creative careers and she's I suppose if you define success in a sort of career, commercial sort of way, she's doing really well for herself at the moment. Yeah, she's doing all right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just a bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's hard when the theatre industry is pretty much on its knees right now. I'm in a bit of a wobble in a weird space myself. And then the first thing people see me is, oh my God, hey, how are you? Oh my God, your sister. You know, so... Is that difficult? Yeah. I'm so proud of Amy and I think she deserves all the success that she's worked for. But it is it is hard, especially Mm. when you've met someone that you haven't seen, obviously because of COVID. And maybe in a slightly selfish way, I'd rather them be asking them about Mm. me rather than my sister. But I have to think that I think that's just maybe I am a little bit, I probably am a little bit envious, but... I think that's just because there's always been a Amy and Louise, right? Mm. So it it feels weird now that we're becoming our own people to be at different stages in our life. It's a bit scary, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't change it. I'm grateful to be where I am right now. But it does great a little bit. But it's a problem that isn't a bad problem to have. How does she help you, given that you both work in the industry, when it comes to specific issues around your mental health and supporting each other to elevate each other mm-hmm. to, a, to a great standard and, and, and hopefully a great place in both your careers. Yeah, so I think the brilliant thing about having a twin sister is we have grew up together, we've done pretty much everything together. We weren't joint at the hip, I will say. <laughs> we weren't in the same classes in high school or anything, but I think living with someone so closely, you just know them to the bone, right? And we're very lucky that we have that relationship. So it means if one of us has a wobble, like I'm not very confident at the moment. My biggest supporter who I live with is my sister, Amy. So she's like, you have this, you will. I've seen you be confident. I know you'll get back there. 
she for example amy had a gig on thursday it was one of her first like important gigs back after covid she had a wobble so i was like amy you've got this like and just saying you've got this it sounds a bit doesn't sound that impactful but i could only listen to it coming from her so i think we help each other in terms of our confidence in terms of mental health we think very differently mm. amy's quite like straightforward uh, whereas <laughs> i sort of think in circles and ups and downs and reds and greens and yellows and everything over and behind and whatever so sometimes if i'm struggling with an issue or something amy just bless her like she just doesn't get it but likewise i can't see as straightforward as, as she thinks which being a twin and obviously having such a close relationship that has been interesting to try and navigate then how we help each other when we think so differently but we're finding ways i told amy literally like last week for the example that like i need to chat so I know that's something you don't like, but I'd appreciate it if you try. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, okay, well, I don't really like to chat. So I don't, <laughs> but I think having that understanding, which is literally something that we have only realized in the last week has helped. And it comes down to just chatting and speaking with each other. Grief is something that we discussed with your sister as well, Louise. Mm -hmm. And you're happy to talk on this too. Before we talk about your grief journey with your dad. Can you tell me how grief and trauma affects you as an actor quickly and the exercises that you said to me you have to do to sort of draw out emotion and, and convey that in your performances? Yeah, so grief, with acting there is this acting exercise where you can say I was playing a character and they just lost their daughter or their parents. I could use a technique which basically imagines me going back to my grief where when my dad passed away and thinking about that and bringing those emotions up and then playing them through the character that I would be playing, which is something in acting I've done before. But I've only realized, again, I so much mentally has changed for me in the last six months. I realized that I had locked that emotion of grief so far in the depths of my soul that when I thought I was reaching that emotion with a character, I wasn't even banging on the door. So I've never used that technique successfully and I never felt that it had traumatized me as an actor. I think asking actors to drudge up past trauma is is very sticky and a bit dangerous which is why if a director asks you to do it it should be like this is a technique you can use but be aware <laughs> of the uh, trauma that it can cause so yeah I, I thought I'd use that technique but I realize now that I wasn't using it properly and grief I suppose it just gives you such a perspective with your acting and, and your performances but it's an emotion I haven't allowed myself to feel mm. really only until the last six months, which is mad considering my dad passed away when I was 13. So 11 years ago. Let's talk about that because your dad was diagnosed with lymphoma mm -hmm. when you were 12 to 13. Can you just start at the beginning if you can, you know, when did you find out he was diagnosed? How did you feel when that news was broke to you, even as a, as a young teenager? And then just mm -hmm. tell me about how 
that journey began and then entered into grief? Actually, my dad, I don't know how old I was when he was diagnosed with lymphoma. It was a very slow burner, as Mm. in my dad was ill for my whole life but I never knew he was ill like it was just you know you're young you're naive and you you grow up with what you're used to so the hospital appointments him going off to get his blood taken that was normal it was like mum going out to the shops for food Mm. so I was always just aware that that was something he was dealing with it wasn't like now if I was told someone close to me was diagnosed it, it would be like a a very new experience for me a horrible one obviously but um it was I think being young I sort of had that privilege of of it just being that's the way it is was there a moment or a period of reflection when you realized that it was starting to get worse and that normalized reality of him being ill decided to get a lot Mm -hmm. darker so to speak so yes there was in the lead up to my dad passing away he moved into a sort of I'm not sure what the word is like a hospice or yeah a hospice yeah palliative yeah, care yeah yeah sure. and I I didn't know what that was but I knew that oh god I knew that that was not good because he'd always been living at home um so even before that he was struggling to breathe so he had oxygen tanks didn't Mm. think anything of that or you know some real like he was in a wheelchair as well it was not an issue when he moved into that hospital that's when i knew something was up um Mm. and then about two two weeks later he he passed away and he and even now like i'm getting getting upset which um it is insane because it's been um more than 10 years but one thing i've realized and and i want to be open about this because i don't think grief is something we talk about i think grief is experienced as much as love if not more (laughs) grief is experienced more and why is there no stories I, I there's not as many stories on grief as there is love and i say that i think we have an unhealthy relationship with death and in our society to the point where the pandemic I realized honestly this is in the last six months of realizing even after we first phoned when my dad passed away I had obviously it happened and it was like a wall went up and Mm. I did not process my grief and I kept myself busy with high school then university then drama school then work and then when the pandemic came, I couldn't keep myself busy anymore. And it is like what they say. It's like you have this overflowing like explosion of emotion that I've been mm. keeping within myself for the last 10 years, the last decade. Yeah. It's a Mentos and... in a Coke bottle, I describe it as. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it honestly fe- felt like in January. So after we had our chat for the, about the podcast... I felt like I had exploded into billions and billions of tiny pieces and been scattered all over the globe. I didn't know what was going on with me. I was depressed. I didn't know that I was dealing with anxiety, grief. I didn't even know I was, I thought I dealt with that. And in the last six months, I've man, I've found a, a brilliant counsellor that I'm working with. And it's now apparent that I haven't dealt with the death of my father, which 
is mind-boggling. I, I, I'm so sad that that's what's happened, that I haven't processed the emotion, but I'm equally amazed that the human brain has the capability to try and protect you. So that was a, a little off, completely off from what you were asking, but I suppose <laughs> it kind of makes sense this was what, what we might talk about because that's obviously, I remember that the shift and then mm. it, it was like, yeah, it's like a wall went up and I always thought I dealt with it really fine, but obviously I didn't mm. deal with it at all. <laughs> Before we talk about grief as a concept a bit more, Louise, can you just tell me about your favourite memories of your dad? You know, what kind of person yeah. he was and maybe some memorable things that he said to you that you or Amy carry with you today? Yeah, you know what? I just think, I think the worst bit about, you know, him being ill and stuff is that obviously that was a massive, massive part of my life. So I don't like that it paints a picture that my dad was ill because he was so not that and I never saw him as that. And he was the most resilient inspiring creative man for example i remember when we lived in the states he built me and my sister these gorgeous shelves and on it he asked us he was like i'm gonna design something on the side and then put some little writing what you want on it so i was like oh i'll have uh, my golden rose so he like engraved my golden rose and then engraved a rose and tinted the wood i mean it's my dad is the most artistic man and at the same time he's an engineer what well, was an engineer see even now I, I i sort of speak a bit in present tense <laughs> uh, and yeah he was an engineer so he's very smart and was nominated for america's best inventor and was runner-up with one of his designs so i just i just yeah this overriding feeling of an impression of of the things that he would build and make us and also the bedtime stories we would go to bed and he would just make up a story from his head and <laughs> it would obviously it would include me and my sister and that I think stuck with me the most because it was like the best bit about going to bed you know dad just coming in and telling us a story I think there was one about a bogey world which was like a planet made up of bogeys which was just so <laughs> disgusting but we loved it and yeah, I think it was me and Amy would be on a little spaceship going from planet to planet. And each night he'd tell us a story of the new planet and the new adventure, um, which mm. was as in, I hope to have kids. And if I do, I that's one thing I cannot wait to pass on is telling these stories. Um, it's very special. Mm. When it comes to cancer, I find there's a lot of, What's the right word? War rhetoric, maybe, with people mm. who have passed away from it or who are living with it. You know, people say they lost their fight when they died or they're battling with cancer. I'm sure it's said with or from a good place. Mm -hmm. But do you think it's a problematic rhetoric? As I guess on the worst end of the spectrum, it might make people think that that person's death was their fault in some way or they had any control over it when they didn't. Yeah. I never thought about this, actually, and and then now you ask it, I think there's a massive problem with it because it does, it just implies unintentionally, I suppose, and subconsciously that they're weak, that they haven't managed to beat cancer mm. when it's not a fight, it's just something in life 
And if anything, I think anyone that deals with an illness like cancer is a hundred billion times more mentally strong than anyone else in this world that hasn't dealt with it. So in my eyes, if you want to use the war rhetoric, they are the winners because I cannot imagine how mentally challenging that must be. Um, so no, yeah, I think there's a massive problem, but it's a mistake that even I have made. So again, yeah. um, hopefully people just hear this podcast and are aware and then spread that to others so it isn't used as much. It's really great that you've become so self-aware of your grief and having to process this, Louise. And it sounds like you're coming out of this period with some real post-traumatic growth, which is good to hear. If your dad was listening to this pod, and I'm sure he is somewhere, what do you think you would say to him? And what do you think he would say to you? I think... Um... It's funny, I, I think because when I shut down that process of grief when I was 13 and then, and then I tried to pretend everything was okay and because he looked out so much for me and my sister and my mum, I went to university because I think my dad, he was, you know, my mum worked a part-time job but she sort of stayed and, and looked after me and Amy which was a, was a full-time job at the end of the day my dad was very aware that at some point he wasn't going to be able to provide so the money was there for me and my sister to go to university for example so I think what I would ask him is I would want to know if he's like proud of us and if we mm. are I think doing enough to show that we're like, I wish I could say I'm so grateful for that sacrifice that he made because he, and I know like we're his kids, but he didn't have to put that money away. He could have spent it on some extravagant holidays or gadgets to make his life maybe a little bit different. But I suppose that's all monetary things. And he always put his family first. So I think for me, and that's an issue I've realized through my counseling is this sort of need, incessant need to try and prove that, I'm good enough or deserving enough. Um, you are. Yeah, you and are. thank you. Um, but, and I know that's not what my dad wanted it. You know, he just wanted us to have a good life and to do what we are doing. And that is what we want to be doing. And that's what I'm doing. So I think it's crap that the way the brain has like manifested itself in that shift. But I suppose that's that would be the first not what wouldn't be the first thing I'd I'd say to him because I'd be like I'd be like oh my god hey <laughs> fancy seeing you here <laughs> no but you know I, I think I would want to ask him if he if he's proud and I know he would be that's the thing it's just funny how the mind works right and I, it's just hard isn't it I I think mm. you know whenever someone dies that you love it's just this this hole that no words mm. no words can ever fix that hole or and things so yeah it's yeah it, it's just i can't think of any other words because I, even if you say oh my goodness i miss you um mm. it's just just it it doesn't doesn't do it justice to the emotions that you feel
when you sorry yeah no it's okay <laughs> it's just crap isn't it like yeah so i'm thinking about my dad as well yeah just almost lost him four years ago so um, yeah but then you know that's and i think <laughs> i don't want to turn this podcast around you but <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, that's why we're talking about it, right? I think it's, we all have these experiences that no one knows about and they're just a part of life, right? And Mm. I keep thinking, like, it's awful, but I don't think we're not taught. And I think that's a powerful thing about art is that you can feel and you're, you're taught about how to love. But how do we grieve? Like, is it in Mexico they have, like, Day of the... Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure I saw in a documentary some other side of the world. If someone in their family passes away, they, like, put them up on the top of a mountain and, like, almost mummify them and then get them out every year and party <laughs> with them. I When I saw it, I was horrified, but then I'm like, no, that's beautiful because they're celebrating a life. And I think we, in Britain especially, are so, well, we don't, don't speak about how we feel and... And, and there's this idea of like, you've got to be successful, you've got to produce, and it's like this endless thing of, of achievement and success without actually coming down to the basics of like, well, it's a life. And how do you best experience life? And that I think is with other people and communicating and just being present. Mm-hmm. And grieving, I think, has as much place in, in, in emotions and conversations as does love. Mm. No, you're right. When you, when you went through that period of grief for your dad, Louise, you told me off air that a friend or a close friend of yours had also lost their dad, maybe around the same time, if I'm right in saying, or maybe mm-hmm. a bit later. Yeah. Were you able to draw any commonalities from their experience and support each other that you could use to move forward? Or was it, was it not something that you ever discussed? So <laughs> I feel like a hypocrite saying this because we never discussed it it was in our first year of university we established that we both had lost parents around the same age and that was it he's a really good friend of mine and we never spoke about it and, and I remember when we first had our call and just like chatting about things I sort of left that phone call being like that's I mean I might have even said to you that we did speak about it like but I remember thinking, you know, that's weird. Why have I not spoken about something to someone who I consider one of my closest friends? Why have I not spoken about that? Because we could help each other. And then in the process, in the last six months, that's something I was like, right, I'm going to speak to him. And we had a, a lovely, beautiful conversation about it. And and I felt better about it. So it just it makes you realise... Again, I say I'm a hypocrite because like there's me not speaking about grief, actively avoiding speaking about it. And I feel better off for having had that conversation with him. And it it makes you feel way less alone. I think that's the Mm. horrible thing about grief is that it's so personal. It doesn't matter. Like for me and my sister, we deal with it completely differently. And I suppose that comes down to like mental health as well. Like at the end of the day, no one is going to know 100% exactly what's going on so when you can speak about it with someone and someone that's dealing with it with a sort of similar experience it, it's cathartic it's special that part of your life isn't just in the past it's still present when it comes to grief i've spoken about it with so many guests louise and mm-hmm. a few things that come up are a that 
some people think that grief is more stigmatized in mental health like you say it's so personal and complex and multi-layered and then some people believe that or they have a metaphorical ticking clock put on their grief by other people and other people expect them to get through it or overcome it or get over it to the worst degree in a certain time period are those things that you've experienced are there any other things that you could show the listeners that maybe they they shouldn't do if someone they know is experiencing grief (laughs) yeah you know I think if you haven't experienced but this is the thing grief can come in all sorts of things whether it's a you know a pet that has died or you lose like a I don't know, a necklace that your grandma gave you that has great sentimental value. Like it doesn't just have to be a family member. And I think even I found myself doing this. You feel like you're allowed to grieve comes with, you know, so for me, a parent as a child, that was like, okay, you're allowed to grieve. And that was that. Whereas, you know, if if a dog dies or you lose a necklace, it's kind of like, I mean, I remember thinking, oh, why why are they so sad about their dog dying a couple Mm. of years ago? Which is, I am glad to see the growth in myself that now I I don't think that but I think yeah it's very natural I think in society to subconsciously without even realizing put a time on what someone's allowed to grieve and put your own opinions on someone else's grief and I think that's right and I've done it and even now because I am grieving it's very I think it's very hard even for someone my sister who who has dealt with her grief over losing her father it's hard I think it's very hard for people to understand why suddenly I'm grieving now I obviously was so when it all came out and now I'm beginning to obviously understand thankfully there's a bit of understanding there now but I think that's the thing is that grief never leaves you and it's just always there but I think there's a beauty in that because there's so much richness and depth to that emotion that you can use it to love better to feel more but yeah I would say I think there is a sort of expected time limit and I think it's subconscious and I think there are judgments I always remember someone's parent back in Scotland passed away and their other parent got into a relationship relatively quick and there was Mm. a bit of like oh like what that's bad but you know what it's no one's business and people grieve in different speeds to others and I just think again that comes to a lack of understanding of what grief is a lack of compassion for other people and I think with social media we're we're so used to seeing other people's lives even if it is on a surface level we are now subconsciously thinking that we're allowed to have an opinion on other people's lives i think the way we think about it is being shifted we're so in everyone else's business when really it's like you know if someone loves someone so much you're not going to be thinking well you might be thinking why are they loving them that much but i think people are more nosy about someone's grief than someone's love i think We've come to the final part of this topic, and it's one that you've already discussed a little bit before, Louise, which is anxiety. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about 
the techniques or management tools that you use to manage it on a day to day basis? You've obviously discussed how it affects you, but how have you got better at managing it if you have? <laughs> yeah. So honestly, it's something that I am in the process of learning right now. For example, to give you context in how much denial I was about anxiety, I remember <laughs> I remember when I first moved to London, I had a acting rehearsal and I was I think I was home alone all day so I wasn't very like not good at reading my emotions I wasn't that aware that I was just feeling a bit off and then it manifested itself throughout the day and then when it came to the acting session I set foot outside my door walked 10 steps out of the house burst into tears and was like I can't I can't and I came home and I shut the door and, and was like oh it was awful and I dealt the next day I was like okay that was a bit bad I just thought I, I was having a bad day like that was normal so unfortunately with the pandemic the panic attacks and being out in public and busy places has I was honestly in like March I was frozen like I, I, I couldn't do anything and my mental health got so bad that I had to phone 111 because it felt like everything in my brain was on fire and I just needed to get out and through this 111 chat they signed me up with this I got a phone call like every two days I think it was from this really nice man called Gary and it was sort of like a therapy session but he gave me the skills for example he was like journal you you need to journal or you know if I'm beginning to feel like I'm zoning out or I'm getting stressed there's like that thing where you, you think of five things you can see five things you can smell grounding yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which I have found helps because it just gives me something to focus on and also now I think being aware of when I'm feeling anxious that was something I was not aware of at all so for me I think it is the grounding stuff and journaling because it just makes me way more aware of my emotions. Uh, I said earlier that I can't read my emotions. I think that ties into the fact that I locked the grief up and was like, mm. I'm happy, everything's fine. So all this sort of greys in between, I don't know what those emotions are. So I'd say that those two techniques are what's helping me right now, but I'm still on my journey to try and develop them. I would say that breathing, deep breathing, is one that does not help whatsoever. <laughs> doesn't help me at all. <laughs> I need no. closure. Yeah. yeah. So that's the only one that I find is detrimental. But I think that's also tied into like, I do that before I go on stage. So I think suddenly, you know, if I'm anxious and then I'm doing techniques I do before I walk on stage, it's a bit counterproductive. I want to reflect on this journey before we move on Louise mm -hmm. so given all that you've been through what has it taught you about yourself and then if you could go back and talk to that six-year-old Louise who was having panic attacks but she didn't know she was having panic attacks <laughs> or the 13 year old Louise who was trying to deal with grief or maybe the 21 year old who was having to put the mask on around snooty mm. actors <laughs> what would you say to her knowing what you do now I think I would tell her to slow down I feel like mentally and physically I young Louise is just always trying to progress and push bound, push 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 and I think yeah that's has been detrimental so I think I would just be like slow down stop listen to yourself 
how do you feel? I'd be shaking. I'd be like, Louise, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> and I, I think I would, yeah, particularly in uni, I'd be like, just stop. You don't, you, yeah. And I say that, I playfully stop. And then for my younger self, when I was little, I think it'd be, it's, it's okay to feel like this. I think I didn't know why I was feeling like it. I was scared to feel like it because I didn't want my parents to worry about me. I think I was very, I think when you have something like an illness in your family at such a young age, it forces you to grow up and be very self-aware. So I think I went, right, well, if, if my dad is ill, I can't be a problem. Like, I don't want to be a problem. So I think it just, I was teaching myself and it was no no one's fault. It all came internally. My mum never did anything or dad to make me feel like I wasn't allowed to show my emotions but I think I just sort of it came from a place of loving I, I wanted my parents not to have one less issue so I think I'd say to my little self like feel let yourself feel sad because it's funny like I don't think saying that out loud does justice to actually how important it is to let yourself feel sad because I just, it's not an emotion that as a society we appreciate, you know. Our Instagrams aren't full of us being sad. Whereas, you know, and we feel sad, I think, as much, if not more than happiness. So when you say something like, let yourself be sad, it sounds like such a blanket, trivial statement. But, oh my God, is it true? You really need to just be sad. Like, it's a good thing being sad. You know, you've got to be sad to be happy. We have come to the final topic of conversation, Louise, and it's one I try and have with all my guests on Real Stories and the Just Checking In podcast, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. It's a mix of quick fire, maybe some deeper questions. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? Mental health is... I'm the most aware I've ever been of my own emotions. It's not in the best place, but I think it's the first time I'm listening to myself. So it's good for that reason. Amazing. What age do you think you were when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Was it when you were having the panic attacks or was it maybe a bit older? (laughs) Honestly, now, as in... 24 in the last few months <laughs> which is insane but that's that's the truth <laughs> there's no good or bad age to become self-aware yeah exactly and i think i think if the pandemic hadn't happened i would still not be self-aware so i think that screams to people that we have to listen to ourselves right <laughs> can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health who was it with what impact did it have and then Looking back on it, did it feel like a a big moment in your life or you had entered a new chapter or a big weight had been lifted off your shoulders or did it feel like something quite light and normal and insignificant? The one that jumps out to me was in first lockdown. I was walking back with my housemate at the time from the park and I can't remember what we were talking about, but she said, you know, it's okay if you get a therapist or if you want to speak to someone, you know. And that's all she said. And it goes back, she knew me more than I knew myself at the time because in first lockdown, I was completely blissfully unaware of the chaos that was actually going on in myself. And it stuck with me. 
and I came out of first lockdown thinking, oh, actually, I think I do need to speak to someone. And unfortunately, it took way longer than it did, but it was a really lighthearted, nice conversation. And it, it was that simple of it. You know, it's someone just looking at you straight in the eyes and going, it's okay to speak to someone, you know? So that's my first, first memory of it, really. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, Louise? It could be things people might say to you. It could be a sound. It could be a sensation or being in a particular social environment. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? There are obviously things I'm trying to learn now. But for a start, it's obvious that it's busy places, loud noises are things that cause it. I know I've had panic attacks when I first moved to Birmingham because it was bigger same with when I moved to London so they're the two things I think the more subtle things I'm still trying to learn I know I have for example we were playing a drinking game at the football yesterday and we were playing this game and it was like who's going to be the least successful and they all pointed (laughs) at me (laughs) oh wow that's brutal you know what I'm the only one doing a creative job they all work boring nine fives like I'm not you know but I also say that nine fives are brilliant if it works for you I'm just a little bit like still a little bit raw from them all pointing at me for being least mm. successful so it was a and jab naturally, at that yeah, affect anyone. <laughs> because I work in nine five for two days a week so I'm very grateful for the nine five but I think that triggered me a little bit and I think that comes back to the whole thing with like my dad and that need to sort of justify having a great start in life because of him so mm chats around success is definitely something that kind of makes me go inwards as well sure for the listeners if this comes out on the record there's a lawnmower going outside my building which hopefully (laughs) stops in the next few moments so if you do hear some background noise please ignore that for you louise what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't I would say journaling definitely works and it only started working for me when I just didn't go into it going I'm going to journal because I feel weird like with the aim of wanting to get something out of the journaling I realize now if I just feel the need to journal and I kind of make a more conscious effort to make time to do that that really helps the things that don't help technique wise I suppose it comes back to earlier the deep breathing I just think it makes me more anxious it makes me feel like I'm about to jump on stage and perform you know so that would be that yeah and as a final question this is quite a broad one so feel free to answer this how you want what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it I think It's as simple and it's said all the time, but it's talk about it. I think in schools, there isn't discussions about mental health. Certainly when I was growing up, it was something like so trivial. I don't remember a single lesson about mental health in my high school. (laughs) And I also think now that there is definitely a larger discussion around it, things are changing. For example... In my high school, I remember someone came in and gave a talk on cancer. (laughs) It was the most, honestly, it makes me so angry. There There was a girl in my year who had battled brain cancer. Phenomenal. She, I just, wow. 
but she was in the audience me and my sister were in the audience there was many other people it's cancer right it affects mm. us all and this woman came in and gave a chat and was like one in three of you are going to get it or so you're going to know someone <laughs> it, it was the most tone deaf thing and it, it, she was giving a talk to a bunch of like 13 14 year olds like it was completely inappropriate yeah, and the school let it happen the fear of god in you in it That's yeah. Hell. yeah yeah so i think we need discussions about it but not like that and i think you know having podcasts like this having more shows that deal with mental issues from it being about grief or sexuality all these sort of things the more that that's out there the more there's an understanding a compassion and then teachers the new generations of teachers aren't going to do something i'm sure it was with a good intent but it wasn't done right so i think it comes to the most simple thing as talking and pushing for this space and creative space as well to let these topics be listened like about and spoken about louise bryan thank you so so much for coming on real stories thank you for having me We have come to the end of this episode of Real Stories. I want to say a big thanks to Louise for telling me her real story. Guys, I've spoken with so, so many guests about grief and every time I do, I find new experiences and perspectives on it from guests that I'm definitely learning from. I hope you're learning from them too. Grief is subjective, unique to each person and hopefully we can all get better at having those sometimes uncomfortable or difficult conversations with people we love who are grieving. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. I'm going to sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about the podcast or vent. If you want to help us out further, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us out with the algorithms and show more people all the good work we're doing here at Vent. If you want to support us even further, please consider supporting us at Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe. The link for that is in all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Behind.